Section 13 of Mark Twain's Autobiography. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. New York, Tuesday, February 13, 1906. Susie's biography continued. Cadet of Temperance. First meeting of Mr. Clemens and Miss Langdon. Miss Langdon, an invalid. Dr. Newton. I recall several of them without much difficulty. In Hannibal, when I was about fifteen, I was for a short time a cadet of temperance, an organization which probably covered the whole United States during as much as a year, possibly even longer. It consisted in a pledge to refrain during membership from the use of tobacco. I mean it consisted partly in that pledge and partly in a red merino sash, but the red merino sash was the main part. The boys joined in order to be privileged to wear it. The pledge part of the matter was of no consequence. It was so small in importance that, contrasted with the sash, it was, in effect, non-existent. The organization was weak and impermanent because there were not enough holidays to support it. We could turn out and march and show the red sashes on May Day with the Sunday schools and on the 4th of July with the Sunday schools, the independent fire company and the militia company. But you can't keep a juvenile moral institution alive on two displays of its sash per year. As a private, I could not have held out beyond one procession, but I was illustrious, grand, worthy secretary and royal inside sentinel, and had the privilege of inventing the passwords and of wearing a rosette on my sash. Under these conditions I was enabled to remain steadfast until I had gathered the glory of two displays, May Day and the Fourth of July. Then I resigned straightway, and straightway left the lodge. I had not smoked for three full months, and no words can adequately describe the smoke appetite that was consuming me. I had been a smoker from my ninth year, a private one during the first two years, but a public one after that, that is to say, after my father's death. I was smoking, and utterly happy, before I was thirty steps from the lodge door. I do not now know what the brand of the cigar was. It was probably not choice, or the previous smoker would not have thrown it away so soon, but I realized that it was the best cigar that was ever made. The previous smoker would have thought the same if he had been without a smoke for three months. I smoked that stub without shame. I could not do it now without shame, because now I am more refined than I was then. But I would smoke it just the same. I know myself, 
and I know the human race well enough to know that. In those days the native cigar was so cheap that a person who could afford anything could afford cigars. Mr. Garth had a great tobacco factory, and he also had a small shop in the village for the retail sale of his products. He had one brand of cigars which even poverty itself was able to buy. He had had these in stock a good many years, and although they looked well enough on the outside, their insides had decayed to dust and would fly out like a puff of vapor when they were broken in two. This brand was very popular on account of its extreme cheapness. Mr. Garth had other brands which were cheap, and some that were bad, but the supremacy over them enjoyed by this brand was indicated by its name. It was called Garth's Damnedest. We used to trade old newspapers, exchanges, for that brand. There was another shop in the village where the conditions were friendly to penniless boys. It was kept by a lonely and melancholy little hunchback, and we could always get a supply of cigars by fetching a bucket of water for him from the village pump, whether he needed water or not. One day we found him asleep in his chair, a custom of his, and we waited patiently for him to wake up, which was a custom of ours. But he slept so long, this time, that at last our patience was exhausted, and we tried to wake him. But he was dead. I remember the shock of it yet. In my early manhood, and in middle life, I used to vex myself with reforms every now and then, and I never had occasion to regret these divergencies, for whether the resulting deprivations were long or short, the rewarding pleasure which I got out of the vice when I returned to it always paid me for all that it cost. However, I feel sure that I have written about these experiments in the book called Following the Equator. By and by I will look and see. Meantime, I will drop the subject and go back to Susie's sketch of me. From Susie's Biography After Papa had been a pilot on the Mississippi for a time, Uncle Orion Clemens, his brother, was appointed Secretary of State of Nevada, and Papa went with him out to Nevada to be his secretary. Afterwards he became interested in mining in California. Then he reported for a newspaper, and was on several newspapers. Then he was sent to the Sandwich Islands. After that he came back to America, and his friends wanted him to lecture, so he lectured. Then he went abroad on the Quaker City, and on board that ship he became acquainted with Uncle Charlie, Mr. C. J. Langdon of Elmira, New York. Papa and Uncle Charlie soon became friends, and when they returned from their journey, Grandpa Langdon, 
Uncle Charlie's father, told Uncle Charlie to invite Mr. Clemens to dine with them at the St. Nicholas Hotel in New York. Papa accepted the invitation and went to dine at the St. Nicholas with Grandpa, and there he met Mama Olivia Lewis Langdon first. But they did not meet again until the next August, because Papa went away to California and there wrote the innocents abroad. I will remark here that Susie is not quite correct as to that next meeting. That first meeting was on the 27th of December, 1867, and the next one was at the house of Mrs. Berry, five days later. Miss Langdon had gone there to help Mrs. Berry receive New Year guests. I went there at ten in the morning to pay a New Year call. I had thirty-four calls on my list, and this was the first one. I continued it during thirteen hours, and put the other thirty-three off till next year. From Susie's Biography Mama was the daughter of Mr. Jervis Langdon. I don't know whether Grandpa had a middle name or not and Mrs. Olivia Lewis Langdon, of Elmira, New York. She had one brother and one sister, Uncle Charlie, Charles J. Langdon, and Aunt Susie, Susan Langdon Crane. Mama loved Grandpa more than anyone else in the world. He was her idol, and she his. I think Mama's love for Grandpa must have very much resembled my love for mamma grandpa was a great and good man and we all think of him with respect and love mamma was an invalid when she was young and had to give up study a long time she became an invalid at sixteen through a partial paralysis caused by falling on the ice and she was never strong again while her life lasted after that fall she was not able to leave her bed during two years, nor was she able to lie in any position except upon her back. All the great physicians were brought to Elmira, one after another, during that time, but there was no helpful result. In those days both worlds were well acquainted with the name of Dr. Newton, a man who was regarded in both worlds as a quack, he moved through the land in state, in magnificence, like a portent, like a circus. Notice of his coming was spread upon the dead walls in vast-colored posters, along with his formidable portrait, several weeks beforehand. One day Andrew Langdon, a relative of the Langdon family, came to the house and said, You have tried everybody else. Now try Dr. Newton, the quack. He is downtown at Rathbun House, practicing upon the well-to-do at war prices and upon the poor for nothing. I saw him wave his hands over Jake Brown's head and take his crutches away from him and send him about his business 
as good as new. I saw him do the like with some other cripples. They may have been temporaries, instituted for advertising purposes, and not genuine. But Jake is genuine. Send for Newton. Newton came. He found the young girl upon her back. Over her was suspended a tackle from the ceiling. It had been there a long time, but unused. It was put there in the hope that by its steady motion she might be lifted to a sitting posture at intervals for rest, but it proved a failure. Any attempt to raise her brought nausea and exhaustion and had to be relinquished. Newton opened the windows, long darkened, and delivered a short fervent prayer. Then he put an arm behind her shoulders and said, Now we will sit up, my child. The family were alarmed and tried to stop him, but he was not disturbed and raised her up. She sat several minutes without nausea or discomfort. Then Newton said, Now we will walk a few steps, my child. He took her out of bed and supported her while she walked several steps. Then he said, I have reached the limit of my art. She is not cured. It is not likely that she will ever be cured. She will never be able to walk far, but after a little daily practice she will be able to walk one or two hundred yards, and she can depend on being able to do that for the rest of her life. His charge was fifteen hundred dollars, and it was easily worth a hundred thousand. For from the day that she was eighteen until she was fifty-six, she was able to walk a couple of hundred yards without stopping to rest, and more than once I saw her walk a quarter of a mile without serious fatigue. Newton was mobbed in Dublin, in London, and in other places. He was rather frequently mobbed in Europe and in America, but never by the grateful Langdons and Clemenses. I met Newton once, in after years, and asked him what his secret was. He said he didn't know, but thought perhaps some subtle form of electricity proceeded from his body and wrought the cures. End of section thirteen, New York, Tuesday, february thirteenth, nineteen o six.